as we continue our series called Food for Thought, where we are journeying during Easter tide from Easter Sunday to Pentecost through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is not an exhaustive overview. This is more just kind of hitting the highlights, particularly as it relates to controversies around food. This is our 50 great days where our prayer is that 50 people will come into membership during this time and 50 tables will join in supper clubs. We encourage you to continue praying with us through that. And with all of that in mind, will you go with me to the Lord in prayer this morning? Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. If you've known me well for any length of time, you have probably picked up on one of my more egregious flaws. It's a fault that is not unique to me, per se, but those who, with whom I'm closest have pointed out on more than one occasion that I have an insatiable need to be right. I just cannot tell you how much I like being right. The only thing that is worse than this deep-seated desire of mine, the only thing it's matched by is my desire for you to know that I'm right. I would like to think that as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little bit better about being able to admit that I'm wrong. I don't know if that's true or not. I just like to think that I have. But even if it is true, it hasn't removed my intrinsically human desire for rightness and vindication. I think back to how much I enjoyed college for not just because of the social experience and making new friends and those were all things that were well and good, but I relished the academic rigors of the classroom discussion. I remember how good it felt to answer questions correctly or to come out victorious in some sort of differing of opinions with a classmate. I like to be right with the decisions I make in my professional life. I want our administrative committees and in our staff meetings, I want my opinion to matter. I wanna be right in my my personal life. I I wanna be right when I argue with my dad about what kind of line is best to put on a bait caster versus spinning rod. I want to be right about which movies are good and which ones are not. I want to be right when I vote for the nappies. And whenever the winners are announced, I want them to be the ones that I voted for. And if I had to guess, my suspicion is that I'm not the only one for whom this is true. I'm sure there might be at least one other person in here that likes being right. This is probably not an earth-shattering realization, but it seems like our world is divided about who is right and who is wrong. I bet you've noticed this, but I think our human need to be right causes us to identify with different groups. We find ourselves in one group that watches one news channel or another group that watches a different news channel. We're in one group that lives here and the other group lives there. We're in this group that thinks this and that group thinks that. Our innate desire causes us to see the world as us and them, the ones who are right and the ones who are not. It pits our rightness against those and their wrongness. And this is not a new phenomenon. 
Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, is dealing with this very same thing. We find this in the Bible just like we find it in our own lives. The Corinthian church is full of wealthy elites and working class. There are educated people and uneducated people. There's an us, there's a them, and both groups want to be right. Here in chapter 12, Paul is addressing a controversy that has split the church into two camps. The well-educated cultural elites think that they ought to be free to eat meat that is sacrificed to idols. Whereas those that don't typically eat much meat think this is a capitulation to the practices of other religions and something that Christians should avoid. For the wealthy, the difficulty lay in the fact that the meat markets from the temples typically supplied the parties and the household gatherings that they would often attend. You see, meat was not nearly as common in the first century as it is for us. You couldn't go to the grocery store and just buy meat for the week and put it in your refrigerator or your freezer and thaw it out to eat whenever you wanted. Meat was expensive and had to be eaten quickly. And as such, most of the meat that was consumed in Corinth came from the Greek temples, from animals that had been sacrificed to Greek gods. So if somebody had scruples with eating meat sacrificed to other gods, they would then have to abstain from eating at these gatherings or they'd just be uninvited from important social and cultural events. Also, since eating meat was less common, the working class and poor, they did not eat it very much because they did not attend these soirees. And so they didn't have the social obstacles to overcome. In fact, for many of them, eating meat sacrificed to idols made it feel like they were cheating. Like they were doing something against their religion, like they were returning back into a former life that they had tried to leave behind for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so into this conflict, Paul is waiting. He addresses this conflict by suggesting that he doesn't actually see eating meat from idols as being theologically problematic. However, he doesn't take the side of those who are more educated. He says, sure, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing spiritually wrong with eating the meat. He agrees. There's no other God besides the one true God. And so meat sacrificed to idols, it doesn't carry any power. It doesn't have any weight. Idols aren't real. But while he acknowledges that they might be right, he doesn't come to their defense, this educated group. Instead, he appeals to love. Paul says that that knowledge without love puffs up. Just because you know you might be right, just because you, you know you're not wrong for eating idle meat, that doesn't make eating it right. If causing harm comes from doing it. He warns that confidence in one's own rightness leads to arrogance and division. But wise and knowing love builds up the community. Paul, not only does he not support those with whom he might have a similar opinion, he actually comes down really hard on them because they're trying to justify their behavior based on their theology. You see, friends, these people, they pose Paul with a logical problem. Who is right, Paul? Tell us who is right. They want Paul's theological wisdom to settle their debate. 
But Paul redefines the issue and says, this is not a logical problem, this is an ethical problem. The people are firmly planted in what is right, but Paul is trying to show them how to be righteous. And rightness and righteousness are not always the same thing. To be like Christ is to be more concerned with being righteous than being right. This is the reason why I don't really believe in debates. I mean, like, I believe debates exist. I'm not some, like, debate truther. Like, I, I, I know that they are a thing that happen in our own personal lives. But outside of the academic experience where there's, like, judges and scorecards, nobody actually ever wins a debate. Because even if you win, you've probably harmed a relationship. If you and your cousin are on polar opposite sides of a political issue, and y'all were to debate about it, maybe by yourselves or amongst the rest of your family, even if you're able to argue with such strength and logic that you convince them of your rightness, you've likely done so at the expense of their own self-esteem. No one likes being proved wrong, especially in front of others, so even if you win a debate, there's a good chance you've damaged a relationship, and is that really a win? Is rightness more important than righteousness? Is being grounded in our rightness more important than being grounded in love? As I think about this notion of what it means to be right, I realize that it's not that different from the notion of having rights. We are a country that is very concerned with our rights. And I, for one, am very grateful for the rights that we have. I'm grateful for the freedoms this country affords, and I give thanks to all of those who have made that possible for us. And as Christians, we believe that freedom has a much deeper meaning than simply the right to choose to do whatever we wish. Often we think, if I'm free, I'm free to do whatever I want. But Christ has set us free from slavery to sin and death for joyful obedience. Christ has given us ultimate freedom, but as Christians, freedom is not simply an enacting of our rights. Freedom is not a lack of restrictions or a negation of the law. Christian freedom is grounded in love. And as such, it means sometimes we give up some of our rights for the sake of others. We sacrifice what we want for what God wants. It means putting others before ourselves. It means sacrificing our own will for God's will. You have the right to choose to do whatever you want to do. You have that right. Christ has set you free. But as Christians, we use that freedom to give up some of the things that we've been given so that others can know the grace and love of Jesus Christ. On this Mother's Day, I cannot help but think of all those women in our lives who are and who act like mothers. Those who are our caregivers, our teachers, our encouragers. So many women in our lives show us that righteousness means caring for others. Caring for children, caring for students, caring for the neighborhood, caring for the church, caring for those in need. You do not have to be a biological mother to show what it looks like to care about righteousness. And there are countless women in each of our lives that show us that each and every day. And that is the call for all Christians. A desire 
for righteousness. You see, Paul wants his Corinthian friends and all of us to know that being certain of what is right or wrong, appropriate or inappropriate, is not sufficient, even if one's position is correct. He says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. If what you do causes harm to other people, that no longer makes it the right thing. A commentator on this chapter of Corinthians wrote, just because you may know some action or activity to be right, we must be mindful of those whose standing in Christ is threatened by the example of somebody else. Other people look to you because you are a Christian. Your witness is meant to be a light to the world. As believers, the early Christians, they they may have had sufficient liberties or the right to eat any food they wanted. However, they also had the responsibility to refrain from that food if exercising that freedom will ruin the beliefs of others. We may have knowledge that makes us feel justified in our decisions. But if it impacts others in a harmful way, then that decision is not right. Love is greater than knowledge. Knowledge without love puffs up, but knowledgeable love builds up the community. And that brings me back to our 50 great days, to this time between Pentecost and Easter where we are hoping to see 50 new members and 50 new tables. And I look at the Corinthian church and I think how great is it that even in their arguing and their disagreements, they are still part of the same church. They might differ over the entree, but they're still coming to the table. And I pray that same thing is true for us. That we will consider gathering around the table with others, even those with whom we disagree. I pray that you're not only going to supper clubs or or Sunday schools or groups in our church just because you wanna be surrounded by people with with whom you agree, but because you wanna be surrounded in Christian love. If you're not in the suburb club, I pray that you'll consider joining one. This is our effort to try to help get everybody into a place where they feel Christian community. I hope you'll find that goodness that comes when the church gathers together around a meal. And as you do, and if you already are in one, I hope you'll consider what it means to care for those with whom you are doing life. To care for them more than you care about your personal preference. More than you are concerned with your own rightness, you are concerned about what it means to be righteous and do life with others. As we form these new groups, and and as you maybe consider the one that you are in, we don't have hard and fast rules for how they have to operate, but we do have some best practices, some hopeful expectations for what we will see over the coming weeks and months. And the first is that we hope that you'll meet together at least once a month. If you get together monthly, you get to stay in each other's lives, know what's going on, and spend that time together. We hope there will be somewhere between 14 and 24 people in your group. You know, that, that number is flexible, of course, but just more than you just hanging out with your two best friends. Christian community is about being gathered with a group of people. We hope that you'll keep us posted on how things are going and when they're happening so that maybe we can come and join you sometime if it's okay if your pastor shows up to your supper club. We'd love to come by sometime. And lastly, we hope that you'll model responsibility in your group and as a group, particularly as it comes to the way you use alcohol. 
In his letter, Paul talks about stumbling blocks and how he'd be a vegetarian if he kept others from having their faith negatively impacted by his meat consumption. And I hope that same thing is true for us in all things, in particular with alcohol use. Because in everything as Christians, we are meant to be a light on a hill, a beacon to the world. And so in all things, we should model responsibility. We should model responsibility with how we spend our money. We should model responsibility with how we allot our time. And whether we are in a supper club or downtown at a Mardi Gras ball, we should be a people who are modeling responsibility as a witness to the world of what a Christian is. When it comes to alcohol, for some, modeling responsibility might mean abstinence. And we should affirm that and celebrate that. For others, it might mean knowing your healthy limits so that your witness is one of high integrity and character. One that is a, an adequate and healthy reflection of a person who belongs to Dauphin Way United Methodist Church. Specifically, when it comes to our supper clubs, it's not hard to imagine that there might be some in our groups for whom alcohol is a stumbling block. And I hope you'll consider what it looks like for you as a group to do life with, if that is the case. To be able to support one another in a way that is honest and healthy. It's easy to show up to a group and everyone assume that everybody's on the same page about all the things. But making sure there's an open and honest dialogue about these sorts of things and many others is what leads to healthy and thriving groups. I know for me and my cyber club, that was one of the first conversations we had. And so friends, as we, as we wrap up this sermon and as we think about all these things, as we think about what it means to be doing life in Christian community, to care about others more than ourselves, to care about righteousness more than rightness, as, as I look at this whole message from Paul, what I'm reminded of is one of the things of which I'm most convicted. You cannot be a Christian in isolation and fully live into the life that God wants for us. I'm very grateful for the ways in which we were able to support those who are not with us. I'm grateful for the live stream. Thank you for worshiping with us if you're worshiping with us on live stream. But we want to be connected with you more than just an hour on Sunday mornings. And if you are able to be in person, then I hope that you are also able to be a part of a group. That you will join a supper club, that you will realize that Christian community is the heart of what Paul is talking about. Because this letter is not written to one person, it's written to the church. It's written to a group of people. The ideal way to experience the life of faith is with other people. There might be times when we're in a group with others and we might disagree with somebody. There might be times where it gets messy, but that's part of doing life. That's a part of being a community. That's a part of supporting one another. And so I pray that we will remember that knowledge, it puffs up if it is not accompanied by love. That the core of the community is not that we all believe all the exact same things or that we're more right than some other group. It's that we love God and that we love one another. And as I think about this letter from Paul and as I was writing this sermon, I was reminded of a song I love by the Youngbloods. It's a little cheesy, but it goes like this. Some may come and some may go. He will surely pass. 
when the one that left us here returns for us at last. We are but a moment sunlight fading in the grass. If you hear the song I sing, you will understand. You hold the key to love and fear, all trembling in your hand. Just one key unlocks them both. It's there at your command. Come on, people now. Smile on your brother. Everybody get together and try to love one another right now. I love that song, but most importantly, I love the idea that there is nothing greater for us to do than to love God and to love one another. And that means that we put righteousness before our own rightness. Made love more than anything else in the world be the thing that drives every one of our decisions. May it be the key factor in how we live our lives. May people see our witness and they will know we are Christians by our love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.